Let's pray together. Fathers, we look into your word this morning. I ask that you soften our edges. That you let grace form us. Unwind us this morning so that we can take our eyes off ourselves and direct them to you and those around us. Some days we remember that we need more help than we realize, and I pray that today is one of those days. So we can surrender to your grace this morning. We have a lot of people suffering in our congregation, and we ask this this morning that you hold them, hold them with the unshakable silence of your love. Awaken us to each moment as a gift received from your hand. Awaken us that each human around us is part of the whole of your body. Father, there's no other way to respond to your blessing except to kneel in adoration of you and for your gift of healing and liberating word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is complicated. <laughs> no doubt about it. Uh, if you've had any experience in the church at all, you probably are pretty familiar with the story of Saul's conversion, Paul's conversion. Uh, it's, uh, it's recorded three times in the book of Acts, which should tell us something, should tell us that it's pretty pivotal, pretty important, uh, pretty crucial to uh, the Christian truth, the Christian message. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story, real quickly, uh, Saul is a, is a seasoned Pharisee uh, who's very passionate about his religion, and he sets out on a career to basically uh, persecute these, this small group of followers that just kind of sprang up of this rabbi named Jesus. And so he goes all over the land, all over the country, persecuting, imprisoning, beating, and maybe sometimes even, even participating in their execution of these groups. And if you know the story, he's on the way to Damascus to do exactly just that when he gets struck down by light, and, uh, and, and it turns out that it's the Lord Jesus who's speaking to him. He doesn't, Paul is like us. He never met Jesus in the flesh. But it's the Lord who appears to him, and he says, why are you persecuting me? And basically, stop persecuting me. And this is a moment of great discovery for Saul, uh, so much so he said it was like, like scales falling off his eyes, and he was able to see. And it was this idea that this also is repeated twice, that Jesus says, stop persecuting me, that there must be some sort of equivalence, some sort of moral equivalence between the people who follow Jesus and Jesus himself, that there's somehow some sort of union or unity there. And this discovery just, just shocked him so much that he spent days praying about this, and, and in the dark and blind about it. And like I said, the scales fell from his eyes. And it kind of sets the pattern for real-life conversions, real-life people who kind of come to that same conclusion, but also just the stories of people in the Bible, this pattern of people who think they know uh, what God is all about, and then they discover something new. Then they discover something different, and it's completely uh, contrary to what they've thought their whole life, and they have to change their way of thinking. And this is exactly what happened to Paul. And this is important because I think it has a lot of bearing on what he says in Colossians as well as the other kind of sister or companion epistles of Philippians and Ephesians. And he writes about this mystery. 
And he, it, mystery is one of his favorite words. He uses it like 21 times in the New Testament. Six times in Ephesians alone, four times in Colossians, and I think six times in, some, in 1 Corinthians. But he likes that word because that for him, that's, that's what all this is. That there's this mystery, this wisdom that is working through the whole earth, the whole creation that's going on. And so what we've seen in Colossians so far is Paul praying for the Colossians, basically. He's thanking God for them, their faith, their firmness. And then he goes on to petition for them. And he lays out what Christ is doing in that beautiful poem in chapter 1. And then, then he, he, what we said last week, he kind of explains where the Colossians fit in this whole story that God's doing. He kind of places the Colossians, these followers of Jesus, on the map of what God is doing. Well, as we come to sort of the introduction of the book, Paul is now placing himself on the map. He's going to tell them about himself because they've never met Paul. They've never met him face to face. They, the only thing they know about him, they know about him from Epaphras and, uh, and uh, Philemon. They know about him from those two guys, and they know he's in prison. That's about it. That's about all they know. So Paul has given them kind of this dense sort of summary of who he is and, and his ministry in these last sections in the beginning of chapter 2 and this last part of chapter 1. So that's what he's doing here. He's kind of giving us this thing, and, and yes, he is in prison. And prison in the ancient world is not like prison that we have today, okay? It's not a, a custodial kind of prison. It's not a custodial kind of work here. In other words, they didn't put, trial, put Paul before trial and say, okay, we sentence you to five years or three years or 30, 36 months or whatever it is. Prison was a place they held people until they decided what to do with you. So they were holding on Paul until they decided what to do with him. And it could be they could beat him, they could banish him, they could execute him, or they could just level a, a, you know, a, a, a huge fine on him, one of those things. So that's where Paul is. He's kind of just waiting around what this is gonna, what this is, what's going to happen to him. And this is what they know. They know about Paul. But Paul starts off saying, I celebrate, I'm having a celebration in my afflictions. How is that possible? Uh, most of your translations probably said, I rejoice in my, in my tribulations, or I rejoice in my suffering, or I rejoice in my afflictions. And, and that's, that's true, the word can be translated, I rejoice, but it also has the idea of celebrating. And when I read, you know, I rejoice in my afflictions, that just sounds a little masochistic to me. That, you know, oh, goody, goody, I get to suffer, you know, that kind of thing. I don't think that's what he's getting at. He's saying, I celebrate in my afflictions. I'm celebrating. Now, why would he celebrate? Why would he be in prison? And the next question is, why is he celebrating? Well, when he comes to a town and he starts telling everybody that all those gods that you're enslaved to, that you're trying to bribe, that you're trying to appease so nothing bad happens to you, it may be Caesar himself who was also a god, or it could be some other god, he says, you know, those are not real gods. Let me introduce you to the one true God of Israel who manifests himself in the person of Jesus. Let me tell you about him. And when people hear that, just like if you were reading Acts and saw when Paul arrived in Ephesians, and he did that, and he got into lots of trouble because then it, then it upsets the economic system and it upsets uh, you know, people who are, who are profiting from this sort of thing and, and like controlling people through this sort, of, uh, this sort of religious stuff. 
And so they throw him in jail. This is not going to be good. So they throw him in jail. But he says, I'm, I'm celebrating. Now, why in the world would he celebrate this? What is it that he's celebrating? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think there's a couple of things that he's, that he's celebrating. One is that he's celebrating these afflictions because he's looking at all this and he's celebrating because the gospel works. Because if you're going to go in there and you're going to preach this message, it is an attack on the principalities and the powers. The principalities and the powers that are seen and that are unseen. And when he's in jail, it's because this is working. This message is having an effect. And people are responding with resistance. And he goes on to say that I'm doing it for you, for the benefit of the church. And how is this benefiting from the church, benefiting the church? Well, he says, I've got this, I, I'm part of God's plan. And God has commissioned certain people to do certain things, and he's commissioned me to do this. And what has he commissioned me to do? Well, I think it's kind of the idea that he knows, Paul knows, that persecution and suffering will come sooner or later. And he's got this small group in Colossae, just a handful of people probably, a few houses represented. The birthing of this young, young church, this young followers of this person, of this rabbi Jesus, and he knows that persecution is going to come to them, but they're too young. They're just beginning in this. And so I see Paul, this is, what, this is what I feel like maybe is going on, that I see Paul as saying, this is beneficial to you because I'm drawing fire away from you. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like a, a, you know, a, a troop going into battle, and the troop needs to be, maybe needs to regroup or retreat or maybe sends a, maybe attack or go somewhere else and some brave commander goes over here and causes causes a, a kind of a ruckus and draws the fire away from his men to himself and i kind of feel like maybe that's what paul's doing here in, in Colossae, that he's drawing the fire away and this is benefiting the group in Colossae. and then he goes on to say this one weird weird thing he says um uh, in, I'm filling up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now, this sends theologians into a tizzy. Because they're saying, no, Jesus, what Jesus did is once for all. It's, it's, it happened once. Jesus died once for all sin, for all people. It just happened once. This was a life-changing, history-making event. What does he mean Paul is, is filling up what is lacking? There's nothing lacking in the crucifixion. Well, calm down, everybody. <laughs> That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that there was lacking something lacking in the crucifixion. What he did was once for all, for all eternity, for all people. But what did, what did Jesus tell his disciples in Mark chapter 8? He said, but if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross and follow the people who follow me are the ones who renounce their lives so that they can gain it. They lose their lives, but they obtain it. And I think what Paul is saying is here that this is the work of the cross, but it is implemented by those of us who want to practice sacrificial love. That that's how the work of the cross is implemented, and how, that's how the work of the cross is, is moved through the creation, through the world, through the earth, is by carrying our own cross. 
So the work of Christ was complete. But Jesus says to implement it, I need people who will pick up the cross and follow me. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, I'm carrying the cross, I'm carrying it out, I'm implementing the work of the cross that Jesus accomplished with the, with the death and the resurrection. So I think that's where he's going at here. And then we get to the, the, the part of this thing that's called a mystery. He loves the word mystery. And he says, this is what is happening in the mystery. He says, uh, like I said, he uses it like 21 times uh, in the New Testament. And when we hear the English word mystery, we think all kinds of things. You know, what is, what is he talking about here? Is he talking about a secret? You know, we think a mystery is something you don't, you know, you kind of keep to yourself. You don't, it's a mystery. You don't want to tell anybody. Uh, or is it a crime that we need to solve? And, and I put that up there because this was my wife's Christmas present from my daughter. Um, we are big Poirot fans in our house, but I think we've seen every one of them. When uh, Katie had pneumonia, and uh, my mother-in-law sent all the videotapes of Poirot down, and they watched it together. And, and I have to drop, a, drop names here. My son-in-law is a personal friend of David Suchet, so... Uh, <laughs> they, they went out there. They work in charities together. And uh, Pete said one time he was, he was going to be late because he was having a beer with David Suchet. And, and, my, and Sue says, well, can he get my autograph? And she goes, it's not that kind of friendship. It's not that kind of friendship. <laughs> so Katie finds a book, gets it autographed by David Suchet, and that was her Christmas present. So anyway, that's more, that's more information than you need to know, right? <laughs> Much more than you need to know. And I just, did I turn this off by accident? There we go. So it is not a... Um, it is not a secret. It's not a crime mystery to be solved. It's not something unexplained like a flying saucer. Uh, it's not a puzzle to solve like a Rubik's Cube. So what is Paul talking about the mystery? And I think he's using religious language in this, in this uh, section here. He's talking about a mystery. When people get initiated into a new religion, you get told these secrets that you keep to yourself. You're initiated. You have, you're privileged to some information in this new religion. Well, I think Paul has taken that word and he's turning it inside out. And he says, yeah, this is a mystery that was once hidden, but now it's public knowledge. It's not something that you, own, that you know by yourself, that you are privileged to have this information and you're going to keep it a mystery. He said, this is a mystery that's out there. This is a mystery for everyone to hear. This is it. And what is that mystery? And then we get to the heart of the book and the heart of the rest of the book. And he says, this mystery is Christ in you. Christ living within you. And he says, this is, his, this is the mystery. And he said, it is the hope of glory. Now, I've, I've said this many times, but I'm going to repeat it again. That when people, we think about the glory, we think about this is what happens when I die and I will go to glory. Okay. Let me reassure you, God takes care of his people at death. He is willing, he is loving, he takes care of people in death. But that's not the end. The hope of glory is something else. It's not about me going somewhere, it's about God coming here. The hope of the glory is the manifestation, the full presence of God in the new creation. If you look at the Old Testament, that's what they were all hoping for. They saw the temple, that this is where God lives. This is where heaven and earth meet in the temple. 
But the day is coming when he will bathe and he will em embrace the entire creation with his presence. And the church, the people, the people of God, we have a foretaste of that, of Christ living within us. And that is the hope of glory. That is the mystery. Christ living within us. Paul says the key that unlocks the ministry, mystery we're going to talk about. And I'm just going to give you six ideas, that, six observations that I think this mystery, and then we're, then we're going to basically spend the rest of the time in Colossians unpacking these six things, basically. But the key that unlocks the mystery. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells them this examine. This is how you examine if you have genuine faith. He says, test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test, and I trust that you discover that we have not failed the test. The question is not, is Christ in you or not? The question is, do you acknowledge that? Do you realize that? That's the question. And what he's saying is, this is the mystery that Christ is in you, and he wants them to realize that they are, that the Christ dwelling in them is the mystery. Christ living within them. That's what he wants us to acknowledge. So, six things really quickly. The mystery is a message of inward communion. It's a message of inward communion. It's acknowledging that he is in us, living in us, that God will reveal himself in us really before he reveals himself to us in a way. It means that he is living inside. He is living in us. It is this inward communion with the Savior himself. And until we acknowledge that and how do we acknowledge that just kind of by nodding our head i think when we receive those moments of sadness as participating in the eternal sadness of god we are acknowledging that he is living within us when we receive those moments of joy and fullness and recognize that it is participating with the eternal joy and fullness of god we are acknowledging that he is living within us. It is that intimate communion that starts off. It is this participation in the eternal God. And this is a mind-blowing thing. This is when the scales start to come off our eyes. It is a mystery message of inward communion. It is also a message of outward participation. The literal translation here, he says, the mystery that has been hidden, kept hidden for ages and generation but it is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ living within y'all. It's plural. <laughs> all y'all, as we say in Texas. It's all plural. It is outward participation that we realize that we are not alone. And the Old Testament has hinted about this the whole time. Jeremiah 31 talks about the new covenant where from the least to the greatest, the law will be written on our hearts. It will be changing our hearts from the lone individual to the group. He says, this is, this is Christ living in your midst. And all y'all, all y'all. I think Paul understands that the individual person is just too small, too insecure, too short-lived, to bear that weight of the hope of glory in just one person. And it's also too small to bear the burden of sin. And so it's Christ living within all y'all. Everybody. You.
plural. That's the mystery, is the message of participation, outward participation in the body of Christ. The mystery is not a moral or psychological message. That's too unstable. It changes so much. We think we know the moral laws, we think we know the psychological help, but, and we think that's all going to work, but it, it changes all the time. From generation to generation, things like this change. I, I heard this uh, about this, this TV program, and it only lasted like 10 minutes of it, and I couldn't watch anymore. Not that it was terrible, it just wasn't my thing, but it's called The Parent Test. And they put these parents up to these different challenges, and they're trying to compare different tyranny styles, the authoritarian style, the demanding style, the new age style, the, uh, the free, you know, total freedom, the, the hands-off style, the, the bubble wrap parents, and they try to compare all these styles. That just tells us how unstable everything is, psychology is. And I'm all for morality and I'm all for psychology. I'm not saying that. But it's unstable. This is different. This is talking about reality. This is talking about our very existence of Christ living within us. If I were to say to you, okay, you're sitting in that chair, and I were to say to you, oh, okay, when you count to three, one, close your eyes and count to three, and at the count of three, God stops loving you. If you were to do that, close your eyes and count to three, and at the count of three, God stops loving you, that chair would be empty. You would no longer exist. This is about existence. This is about reality not just another psychological, moral message. The mystery is a person, not a carefully constructed theology. And as we develop that, we, sometimes we think that the, the true Christians are the people who believe everything correctly and say it correctly. But this is a mystery that, that love surpasses all of our knowledge, all of the things that we seem to put together before God that we think we know, the scales sometimes just need to fall off. I'm afraid we have traded our knowledge and our constructed theology for awe and wonder. And awe and wonder is what brings us into the relationship with the person. Not all the things we think we know about him. Not the way we describe him. Not the way we define him. And we've taken that definition and put it in place of awe and wonder. And what Jesus wants is our awe and wonder. That we are treasured by the creator. A creator who would rather die than live without us. That is a mind-blowing idea. That Christianity is not just information. It is participating in a communion with a person. Number five, the mystery is a message of mystical wholeness. What Paul emphasizes in this book, as well as Ephesians and Philippians, is the union of matter and spirit together. He mentions that in, in chapter one, when that great poem about, about Christ, the full Godhead was made manifest in him. He, he stresses that about uh, the being reconciled in, in, in Jesus' fleshly body. He's very, very stressing this spirit and matter union together. That's what, it's a, it's a wholeness there and not split. And they reveal each other. This is the wonderful thing. The matter and the spirit reveal each other. 
I love science. I, I, my undergraduate was in the science. I have a daughter who's a scientist. And she told me one time, and I think it was almost a confession, she was doing some research, and she said, she said, you know, Dad, she, go, she attended a great church in College Station, Texas, Grace Bible Church in College Station. And she said, you know, Dad, sometimes I think I feel closer to God in my genetics research than I do listening to a sermon. <laughs> but I understand that. And I think we have left science can tell us all about life and tell all about this stuff and tell us a lot of things, but it can't tell us the meaning. The Spirit tells us the meaning of life. They reveal each other. There is this union of matter and spirit together. They reveal each other. And finally, the mystery is a message of mystical wisdom, of growing up. And it is mystical. It is an experience. It is something that we know apart from just the head knowledge. It's something that we feel, something that we live. It's not just acquiring facts. Watching somebody do something is very different than doing it yourself. I just had to watch a video, a YouTube video, on how to repair a bifolding door. And I'm watching the guy, piece of cake, you know, and then I try to do it, and it's a little bit different. His door didn't look near as heavy as mine, <laughs> and a lot of other things. But doing it is very, very different than learning it, seeing it. And this wisdom is a wisdom of doing, of living. Wisdom is living well living well and we no longer have to prove something or protect something i don't no longer have to protect my my ego that i can learn to finally forgive my imperfect imperfections and i can finally learn to forgive your imperfections by living in wisdom i'm just going to gloss over this last section here but um at the end of the, end of the section that, that Ruth read, he kind of says that this is this human project. And this gospel, this message of Jesus doesn't make us less human. It makes us more human. And anyone who says that, oh, being a Christian just makes you into a robot and makes you like everybody else, that is a smear and a lie. God is doing to you, in you, something very, very unique, just like he's doing something in the person next to you that is very, very unique, and that's how it all works together. It takes time. It takes pastoral work, and I'm not saying just from the pastor. I'm talking about each other, pastoring, pastoring each other. It takes time to do that. It is not automatic. It just takes time. In Christ, that's where we find the wisdom. And Paul loves these words. He loves in Christ. He loves wisdom. He loves secrets. He loves the word hidden. He loves the word plan. He loves the word mystery. He loves all these things. But we, he uses those words so often that sometimes I think we just jump over them and think we know what they mean, and we really, really don't. That we don't have to have just the exactly precise vocabulary to have the right experience and the right relationship. They're not the same. 
quite not the same. I think um, we, these, are, these are some things that we can't think our way into. These are something we can't argue our way into. We, we are to be caught up in this relationship of love and awe and wonder. We cannot generate his presence in us. We can ignore it, but his presence is a gift. We can't fabricate that. It's just something that we trust. And we recognize his presence by us showing up. And that's how we see it. And if we can do that, if we can show up, then you can, I, I, I guarantee you, you can trust him and you will sense his presence all day, every day if you show up because he's already there. The only way we separate is if we move away. We are not saved by knowing some secret that no one else knows. That's not how it works. This is a public story and it belongs to all. We're not saved by what we do. We're not saved. We're saved only by God's nature. This God who, who, who loves us, this God who is not immune to pain, this God who is not immune to obscurity, this God who is not immune to abandonment. That's how we're saved by his nature. The God who makes himself a servant to creation. A God who puts creation first. Imagine that. That's who saves us. That's the person who saves us. I feel like that I'm um, coming back full circle here uh, in my Christian life. Uh, when I was a teenager, about the same age as Diego was probably. Um, and I, I came back there and, and I kind of wonder what my 25-year-old self, seminary student self, would say to my 65-year-old self. And I think my 25-year-old self would say, um, Tommy, I think you're too wobbly. You're too naive. You're too elementary. That all it is is Christ living in you, that's just too simplistic. And I would say to my 25-year-old self, I would say, no, I think I'm growing in maturity. I think I'm growing that's what I think. And you can call it simple, but I think I'm really finally wising up. The mystery of Christ living within me is the mystery, period. Christ living in you is the mystery, period. Christ living in all y'all is the mystery, period. The mystery is not is not something that's unknowable. The mystery is something that's eternally knowable. That's what's so great about it. It's endlessly knowable. Period. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's complications, but um, boy, wow, just the depths of your word. And uh, we want to just come back to what it is simply. We want to be present in your presence. Amen.